So in the past few months, we have been considering what it means for us to exercise spiritual gifts for the common good. What does it mean for us to exercise spiritual gifts for the common good, for the building up of the church? And in the past few weeks, we have been considering tongues and prophecy in more detail with the particular emphasis that public tongues must be accompanied with interpretation so that the message is clearly understood. And prophecy must be by the Holy Spirit so that the message from the Lord, the prophetic utterance is a message from the Lord to the people, we are praying and, and believing that when that message comes from the Lord to the people, it will be clear and benefit all the hearers. So these are the things that we've been going through in the past few weeks. And today, we get to Paul's conclusion that everything we do in the church should be done in a fitting. Some versions have the words proper, decent, appropriate. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's how he says in this passage. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Before we get to what it means to do everything in a fitting and orderly way, let's deal with the two verses that probably caught your attention right away. <laughs> verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. 
They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, you may remember that when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we were going through the topic of headship and head coverings and so on, we read this phrase in chapter 11, verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies, referring to the public expression by women in the corporate meeting. There was a clear recognition, and there's a clear recognition in the Word of God, of women praying, prophesying, and of speaking aloud in the corporate gathering. There are multiple other scriptures that speak of how women are in leadership in the church. So these two verses here in chapter 14, verse 34 and 35, must be understood then in context, especially regarding what was happening in Corinth and in relation to the rest of scripture. Now, the Greek word, that the Greek word sigeo, that Paul uses in verse 34, that is translated to be silent, is the same word that is used in verse 28. Some of your translations or some of your versions don't use the phrase to be silent in all these verses, but it's actually the same Greek word. So the same Greek word that he uses in verse 34 to say to be silent is the same word used in verse 28 when he says, if there is no interpreter of tongues pre present, then the speaker in tongues should be silent. Same word. If there's no interpretation available for the tongues, don't speak the tongues, be silent. And then in verse 30, he says, if a second word of prophecy is revealed from the Lord, then the first speaker who's giving the prophetic word should conclude or be silent so that the second person can be heard. So he's using the same word there, right? That when this is happening, you should do this. Which means... He's not saying that women are to be permanently silent in the church, but that they must be self-controlled and temporarily silent in the church, just like the person who may be about to speak in tongues and just like the person who's speaking in prophecy and so on. He's saying not, it's not a matter of being permanently silenced. Women cannot say anything at all, but rather... Women should be self-controlled to be temporarily silent when there's a possibility that speaking at that specific time would be out of order. In fact, in the next phrase in verse 34, that has to do with submission. You know, he's talking about submission. It implies that there was insubordination and possibly a lack of honor by a woman of her husband that was resulting in disorderliness in the Corinthian church. So in the Corinthian church, you've got this situation. And remember, the book of Corinthians, you know, the whole epistle, he's making these corrections. But in the Corinthian church, there were likely situations where women were being disorderly. There was insubordination, no respect of authority. There was some sort of lack of honor or something else happening between the women and their husbands. And so this leads to the admonishment that he makes to the women to not do anything that would be disruptive in public 
and to conduct all Q&A at home in private. So he says, don't do the things in public that would cause disruption, that would cause the kind of chaos in the service. Instead, if you've got a question or you want to talk about something or you have an opinion about something, talk about it at home. Talk about it after. Discuss it with your husbands later. Now, there's a whole bunch of other thoughts on what exactly happened in Corinth and why did they behave this way and, you know, and so on. And much of that is speculative. We don't have a definitive source to say this is exactly what happened in Corinth and this is exactly why Paul makes this mention. And these two verses are, are so controversial that some have suggested that you know, may, maybe somebody added these verses later because Paul has said this before in chapter 11 and now suddenly this and that. But regardless of all of those kinds of conjectures, the point here is that the, the focus, the ultimate focus of this passage, it's about propriety in worship and maintaining order. That is, the focus of the whole epistle of Paul's letter and his correction to them to change their thinking and their behavior so that it is in line, it is aligned with, it is in order with the Word of God. That's his, that's his whole focus. So throughout, you know, as we've been going through these chapters, we've pretty much, we're pretty much at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, this first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, and then we'll go into 2 Corinthians. But throughout this book so far, he's telling the Corinthians not to take sides and cause divisions. You say you're of Paul, you say you're of Peter, I say I'm of Apollos. He says don't do those kinds of things and cause divisions. He says don't be proud, don't be puffed up in your supposed knowledge and understanding that then causes arguments and disagreements. Oh, I know better than you. You think that's what it means? No, it doesn't. You know, verse 34 clearly means this. And, you know, just we get into these arguments and disagreements and so on. And then he tells them, don't behave selfishly in a self-centered way. Behave always, work always, live always for the sake of others. Don't behave in such a way that you want to show off your individual gifts. You know, where you say, look at me. But rather you would exercise your gifts for the benefit of others. And you would not do things that are to one-up the other person, which causes chaos. So one person has to do something and another person says, oh, I, do, I can do better than that. Right? And up you get and start to do something. It just creates chaos. So he's speaking about every one of these things and he's going through these systematically and he's pointing out to them that the gifts of the Spirit were to be exercised through the bearing of the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit were not just to be done in isolation. It was by the same Holy Spirit that allows you to bear the fruit of the Spirit that you were to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit includes patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. And so he's saying these are the ways in which you should be expressing yourself. And when you're doing that, when you're work, you know, moving in that way or led by the Spirit in that way, all of those things have to do with how you deal with other people, your public conduct. You're aware of it, you're exercising it, you are led by the Spirit for the benefit of the other person, right? And so, 
The question becomes, how should we maintain public order? What does that mean for us? How should we do this? Now, I, I want to I highlight a couple of verses and I'll come to that, but I just want to make a quick point here. You know, when he says that when some one person prophesies and then another person has a word, remember what I said last week about the interpretation of tongues. The interpretation of tongues by the same spirit would mean that even if there are one or two people who have an interpretation, they, the interpretation would agree. Right? It wouldn't be conflicting interpretation. It wouldn't be that you have a message in tongues and then one person stands up and says, I think tomorrow we should you know, go, to, you know, go on a mission trip. And then the second person stands up and says, no, the, the whole thing is not to go on the mission trip. We have to do something. I mean, that's not the way that the Holy Spirit is operating. Same kind of principle applies here when he talks about the prophecies. He says, when one of you speaks or prophesies or has an utterance from the Lord and is foretelling something from the Lord or maybe even foretelling something from the Lord or giving a warning to the people or doing something to call people to repentance, whatever the word may be that is coming from the Lord, the second person that speaks is not going to stand and contradict that. that that's not the action of the Holy Spirit. So we have to discern. But he says here, you need to carefully weigh it, just as we would be careful and deliberate about the message in tongues and about the interpretation of it. He says here too, you should be careful about the prophecy that is given, about the word that is given, so that anyone who speaks in that way, would their words would be carefully weighed. And like I said last week, how do we weigh the words? We see how it matches or stands up to the word of God. We see how it aligns with scripture. We see how it, how, what, what is the consistency of this word with what the Lord has already communicated to us. And so we pay attention in all these ways and we deal with false prophecies by the analysis or by the way that we can look at the Lord's word in context that applies to that situation. But having said all that, we come back to this question, if the, if the focus of these passages is on maintaining order, doing things in a fitting manner and so on, how should we do that? How do we maintain public order in the church? And I want to highlight two verses, verse 32 and 33, to talk about order in the church. So first, from verse 32, which says, the Spirit's of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. That means when somebody is speaking by the Holy Spirit, they have the ability to allow the Holy Spirit or to yield their tongues to the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit speaks to them. They have the ability to receive, to, to hear from the Holy Spirit what the Lord is saying, but they have the ability to say something different. They have the ability to control, to stop, to stifle, to do whatever. The Holy Spirit is not taking control of their bodies in that sense. The Holy Spirit is speaking through them, inspiring them, directing them but the control is still with the prophet those who prophesy or speak in tongues publicly even are to exercise evident self-control 
This, is, this statement and this description of what the word is saying is a marked contrast between the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a Christian gathering or in a, in a setting where the Lord is worshipped and the Lord is lifted up. This is marked contrast with that manifestation of the Holy Spirit in that kind of a context and the manifestation of any other spirit in any other circumstance. Manifestations of other spirits are often characterized by the affected individual losing control and becoming frenzied in mind and body or falling into a trance. This is typical or what you would see in many of these manifestations of other spirits. But, and, and many times when that happens, the person doesn't even know what happened to them. They come out of the trance or they come out of the thing and they don't even know what happened. They can't tell you the details. You know, they don't know what, what was done or what was, what was going on to them when they were under the influence of this spirit. Manifestations of the Holy Spirit are typically characterized by controlled speech based on biblical vocabulary, shared understanding based on intelligible words, clear and simple teaching, and truth spoken in love for the common good. Right? The results from the manifestation of the Holy Spirit are for the benefit of society, the benefit of the body of Christ, and subsequently, the benefit of specific individuals. There may be specific individual healing, deliverance, blessing that is manifest. But the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is characterized in all these ways that stands in marked contrast to the manifestations of other spirits. And for those of you who have experienced this, who have actually seen this firsthand, right? You know what I'm describing. If you've never seen it, come later, I'll tell you stories. But, you know, um, but, you know the whole point is that we say, look, I recognize what the Holy Spirit is doing. And I discern, I recognize what other spirits are doing. There are all sorts of other spirits. There are all sorts of things. There are all sorts of prophecies. There are all sorts of signs and wonders. When Moses threw down his rod in front of Pharaoh, all the magicians in the court did the same thing. Right? So you'll see all sorts of manifestations. The question is, how do you know that this is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, God himself? It's characterized in these ways. It's characterized by that kind of control that is evident in the speaker and in the ways that is being expressed to us. Now, um, let me make this point because sometimes we, we hear this, we say, okay, manifestation of the Spirit has to look like this. And then we say, well, it must happen like this, right? This person must say this. They must do it like this. They must stand here. They must do this. They must be wearing this kind of clothes. They must, you know. And we have a specific expectation. And if something is out of that, we judge by our senses. And we say, uh, I don't know. And I'll tell you a story. We were listening to one man of God who was talking about the fact that he went to 
He, in, the, in their church, there were all these manifestations of the Spirit taking place. People were coming from all over. There was all this revival. It was, a, it was in the news, all this stuff. And a non-charismatic, non-sort of Pentecostal, you know, liturgical church invited them to come and speak at their meeting of their priests and their leaders. And so he went there to talk about what the Holy Spirit is and baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift and spiritual gifts and tongues and all of that. And as he did this, he talked to them. And they're asking questions in a very genuine, sincere way. They just really didn't know. And through this, he talks to them. And, and by the way, this man is a very uh, staid. Like he just stands in one place. He doesn't move around. He doesn't shout. He's very soft-spoken. So he's describing all these things to them. And then he told them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They said, we, let, okay, let's pray. So he prayed for all of these priests. And they were clearly affected, impacted by the presence of the Holy Spirit coming on them and so on. And one of them clearly filled with the Spirit and starts to speak in tongues. He's never done this in his life, right? And then, after having done this, he fell onto the floor and he's lying on his back and he's doing this. And all the people are just sort of watching him. Right? And so this person who was leading the meeting is standing in the front. And, you know, everybody's looking to him. And clearly this looks like it's out of order. Right? It, it's not what they were expecting. It doesn't look like it's clear and intelligible speech. It doesn't look like he's doing something that would be in control. So they said to him, what do, what do we do? What's going on? And this man went over to this priest lying on the floor here doing this and he said what are you doing and the man said I'm running I'm running he said where are you running he said I'm running to Jerusalem I'm running to Jerusalem and he said I see Jesus I see Jesus standing there and I'm running to him and he describes this picture so all this time while he's lying on the floor he's seeing a vision and he's describing this. And he's talking about the fact that he's getting there. And he embraces Jesus. And so this man of God turns to the others and he goes, he's running to Jerusalem. <laughs> you know? so, right? And, and he left it there at that. Now, it would have been one thing for this man to have talked about it and just described the story to us, but to, to all of us in the, in the crowd. But this priest was there. He was there at that service and he got up after and he said, this is what happened to me. He said, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't really particularly believe this, but I know that the Lord Jesus came. And he talked about what he experienced. He talked about what, he, what the Lord had done for him and the transformation that had taken place, not just in his life, but with his parishioners and how he was pressing into the Lord. And we just sat there and we said, wow, wow. What, a, what a story. What, a, what an example of doing something or seeing something happen and trusting the Lord. The point that I want to make to you is this. As we strive for orderliness in every way, don't be surprised if the Lord does something that you don't expect. That the Lord does something that is out of the ordinary. You still have to be discerning. Because what we want to do, we don't want to discern, we want to sense. We want to say, look, I saw this happen this way before. If it doesn't happen that way again, then it's not of God. Right? 
But what we have to say is, I saw this happen this way before. I'm not sure what's happening right now, but help me, Lord Jesus, to discern whether this is of you or not. Help me to see by your eyes. Help me to know with your word that this is what's going on. This priest wasn't experiencing something of the devil. He was experiencing something of the Lord where the Lord was calling him to himself and embracing him and calling him his child and saying, I have all this for you. Come receive, take this. And I want you to do this. That's the promise of the Lord. So when we say we want to do all things in order and there is the control of the prophets, sometimes there may be some things that look like they're out of control. But we've got to understand what the Lord is doing. Which means, it brings us to the second point about order in the church, and that's from verse 33, which says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. It's noteworthy that the verse does not say, For God is not a God of disorder, but of order. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, for God is not a God of disorder, but of order. In, clearly, God is a God of order. Clearly, God is a God of advanced planning. Right? Even before the creation of the world, he knew that he would send Jesus. Or that he had purposed for that to happen. And even before one day of our lives were in this earth, he knows exactly what is going on. He's, he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. When you despair of anything that's going on in your life, you've got to remember that even before the creation of the world, he had a plan and a purpose for you. And in the midst of all the storms of life, we can say, oh, our God is a God of order. Our God is a God of precision. Our God is a God of advanced planning. And our God is a God of very precise execution. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is left undone. When he says, this is what's going to happen, it happens. And so our God is a God of order, without any doubt. Yet, the word of God here describes the opposite of disorder, not as order, but as peace. Our tendency, our tendency, when our ducks are not in a neat and orderly row, when things are not going the way that we want, our tendency is to exert control, to impose rules, to define a clear order of service and ensure strict adherence to that order. And we said, this is the way that we have to do it. And we make that demand of ourselves and everybody else. When we see or hear something that we don't agree with, we say, we actually yell, we don't just say, we actually yell, you're out of order. Get back in line. Obey those in authority. How dare you speak to me like that? Be silent. You have no right to do that. You should be ashamed of yourself. Right? What are we doing? We're trying to impose order. We're trying to impose control. We're trying to say, oh, everything is going out of control. I better step in. I better do this now. I better make things right. We do it to our children. We do it with our spouses. We do it in our workplaces. 
we do it in the church. Just imagine if God did this to us whenever we were out of order in terms of what he has commanded us to do and in terms of what he has clearly demonstrated is what we should do. Just imagine, all day long, all we would be hearing is God saying, you're out of order, you're out of order. Praise the Lord that he doesn't. He does not deal with us like this. He doesn't just come in and strong arm us. You see, the thing is, while we demand to be understood so that others will do what we think is right and in order, God promises to give us his peace that passes or transcends our understanding. We want the rules, we want the things, we want all the stuff in place that says, I understand what needs to be done. And God says, I'll give you peace that passes your understanding. You think you got it all under control. You think you know what to do. You think you know what to say. Okay, go ahead, try. And all those plans that you just made, that you thought was a perfect plan, right? That strategy, that, that battle plan. As soon as the enemy is met, ooh, it just fell apart. And now what do you do? You have to come back to our God who says, no, 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 I'm not giving you the perfect plan. I'm not giving you the way out in that sense. I'm not giving you the rules that you can now impose on somebody else. I'm going to give you peace. You see, the peace of God, unlike the peace and quiet that we seek, when I come home from work, all I want is a little peace and quiet, right? Unlike the peace and quiet that we seek, the peace of God is not primarily the absence of noise or conflict or fear or war or disagreement or anxiety or lack. I, mean, I would be at peace if I just had a little bit more. I would be at peace if these kids didn't do this. I would be at peace if my spouse just listened to me. I would be at peace if, you know, my boss understood me. I would be, you know, all of those absences of things and then, you know, it's not that those things just go away and then we would have peace. You see, the peace of God, unlike what the world will say is peace, where it's really defining it in terms of absence, the peace of God is the presence of God. It's not the absence of something else. In the midst of all of that, he says, I am with you. He doesn't say, I remove everything. I'll take away every war, every conflict, every disagreement, every, every, every sort of friction that you're having. I'll take it all away, and then you'll have peace. He says, in the middle of all of those things, in the midst of all those problems that you're facing, in the midst of this, where you're saying, I don't know how I can go through just for another day even, I will be with you. You see, the peace of God in our lives is the presence of the Prince of Peace. That's all we need. We're not praying and saying, God, make everything right. 
We're praying and saying, God, be with me. When Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace, that means he rules supreme. He reigns over all these circumstances. And the peace that he offers is triumphant, is victorious, is overcoming all of these circumstances. That's what we've got to see. That's what we've got to know. That's what we've got to be able to say, Oh God, I thank you for your peace. You see, the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we want. Which means, you know, and I started into all of this by saying, how do we maintain order in the church? Right? What, is the, what, is, what does he mean when he says that you should have your, all your, everything you do should be in a fitting and orderly manner? And I said, well, here are two things. Right? One, self-control. You know, the ability to have the control that is exercised. We're not out of control. We're not just doing something randomly and doing all of that. And secondly, that we recognize that our God is a God of, not of removing disorder, but a God of peace. That should be what governs how we come to order in the church, which means that we respond and apply that we respond to this word of God and we apply this word of God in our context and in our church by building up the church in a fitting and orderly manner. That means that we have to say, Lord God, I need to know what you want for this church. Verse 26 that we read said, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. We encourage people to give. Why? So that the church may be built up. What way? There are physical needs that facilitate the spiritual growth and the spiritual benefits. Why do we do that? We, why do we do it consistently? Because the Lord says to do it. The Lord says to give. The Lord says to come together in these ways. The Lord says to invest into, into those things that build the church, that advance the kingdom, that cause the brothers and the sisters to be able to serve one another. So we do it. Why do we pray? Why do we, why do we say, okay, we can pray for one another? Why have a prayer ministry team? Why, why do any of these things? Because the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, to pray for each other, that if there is a need to bring it to the church, not to be isolated, not to be somehow separated from the body of Christ, but to come together with that local body. To come together with those specific brothers and sisters and to say, I want to stand with you. I want you to stand with me. I, wa I want to exercise my gift that's going to benefit you and I want you to exercise your gift that's going to benefit me. Let's do this together. Let's build. Let's do everything that we can do to build the church. Now here in our church, if you haven't noticed already, we have an order of service. We don't have a liturgy that we have printed and, and shared. And we don't have bulletins that we hand out that show it to you. But we're essentially following an order of service. Right? We do that. Is there something wrong with that? No. That's fine. It gives a way to con construct the service and to do those kinds of things. But our whole focus is not on us. It's not on the order of service. It is on saying, Lord God is your presence in our midst. When we come to a service, any corporate gathering, do we leave from there saying, surely the Lord was in our midst in that time? The Bible, even as we read in the previous chapter or previous section, it, 
the, the claim should be made, that statement should be made, it says, by an unbeliever who comes into our midst, watches what we do, listens to what we say, experiences the touch of the Holy Spirit and says, oh, surely your God is here. Surely your God is at work. That's what we need to see happen. Which means that every single time that we're coming together, every single time that we are saying, this is what we're going to put our hands to, we want to pray for the presence of God, for the peace of God, for the work of the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit in these ways that may not look exactly like the, what we did the previous Sunday. You know, it may not look exactly like how we did it for 10 years. Maybe not. But we say, oh Lord God, you lead us, you guide us, you direct our steps so that we will build the church. I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you this uh, morning. Not everybody is here, and some may hear the message later, and so on. But this is, you know, this is the start of the year. We're just, we're just really getting going for this year. And I want to challenge you that you would say, Lord God, what are the ways in which I need to build a church? How should I contribute to this church's construction? Because you're, you're certainly spending time asking that question about yourself, about your own body, about your own mind, about your own circumstances, about your job, about so many different things that are going on in your life. Ask the question, what should I do about the church? How should I participate? What should I do in such a way that your name is glorified in and through me for the benefit of the church, for the common good? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that, Lord, your word is good for us, that your word is, Lord, powerful, and we want to respond to your word. Father, we pray that all the things that we do in our church would be fitting and orderly, but not because it conforms to our thinking or our expectations or our rules, but rather because it is led by the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that we would wait on you and we would hear beforehand, we would hear in preparation and in advance of what needs to be done. And then as we do what you tell us to do, let us continue to remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that we will adjust, we will discern, we will respond to every single prompt that you give us. Thank you, Lord. Guide us, lead us, direct us. Oh, Father God, I thank you that this morning as we have gathered here and worshipped you and looked at your word, Father, you are continuing to speak to us to build us up for the common good. Lord, let our church truly be a place where every single person is growing in the Lord, is, Lord, exhibiting, is evident, is showing with great evidence that, Lord, the Holy Spirit is at work in them. And let us then collectively, Lord, grow and shine as a light for you in this community. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we pray all this together this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen.